and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are the mountains around here so beautiful, so beautiful, so beautiful? We'll get to that question in a bit. Before we introduce our amazing guest today, I want to introduce the other panelists. We have myself, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. Which you're all familiar with. And we have as well, Eric Berry today. Eric, how are you? I'm doing good. And I'm actually surrounded by beautiful mountains as well. So it is a wonderful life right now. Good. In day. fact, all three of us are. Our That's guest right. today is calling from Glens Falls, New York, right in the heart of the Adirondacks. We have May Beal on the program. May, how are you? Good, thanks. Appreciate being here. We appreciate having you. May is joining us from her home in New York, as I said, where she is the engineering manager for True Link Financial. She's also the vision and operations strategist for Title Track Michigan, which I definitely want to get into what that is, as well as the founder of Beale Street Software, which kind of sounds to me like Burnt Fan Creative, just a small tech consultancy that you kind of run yourself. Am I right there? Yep. Cool. Can you tell us what True Link Financial is? Yeah, it's a fintech startup in San Francisco that focuses on delivering solutions for people with complex financial needs. So the oh. three main demographics are people with disabilities, people with dementia, and or people in recovery. That's way more amazing than I thought it was. That's really it's cool. Pretty awesome. Yeah. And how they run and do things is pretty amazing too. You joined us today on the recommendations of a really dear friend of mine who goes by the name of Kira Oakley. And you've done a lot of similar type work with tech companies that are trying to help people out. They're trying to do good things. I take it from the title that Title Track Michigan is similar. Can you talk a bit about Correct. what that is? I sure can. Thanks for asking about it. So Title Track Michigan is celebrating the two-year anniversary right now. They're the shortest tagline is Water Equity Youth. And so they focus on bringing artistic and creative disciplines into solving complex problems. So water protection, racial equity, and youth empowerment and all the ways in which those intersect. Is that related to anything to do with Flint, Michigan? There are some ties to Flint for sure. Mm -hmm. Cool, because water has been really popular in a discourse, not just because of Flint and obviously issues with water scarcity and water quality, including in yeah. cities. Here in Vermont, we have water quality people everywhere. Some of them are my best friends. They're really great people trying to make that stuff better, but also water protection, right? Indigenous yeah, rights. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And rights of the water itself. So Ooh, there's- you talk more uh, about that? Yeah, there's a lot of different efforts, similar to how companies became people. There is precedent for natural spaces to becoming people or entities that have their own rights. So the protection is on behalf of the lake itself. That's really interesting. Talk I went to here in Vermont, I'm on indigenous Abenaki land that was uh -huh. unseated. And some of the Abenaki who I heard at a talk recently mentioned that they actually say thank you to the water every time they take a drink and that the water itself is actually a being that they respect and honor through their practice on a daily basis, which is very different than the Western Judeo-Christian approach I was raised in. Totally. Yeah. And actually, I had meant to suggest a land acknowledgement at the beginning when you said where I was from. So I'm sorry I didn't suggest that before. And thanks so much for bringing that in. But I'm on Haudenosaunee land, specifically closer to Mohawk region. I'm really grateful that you brought that up because I've started doing land acknowledgement at the beginning of most of my community calls. 
because in remote land, like who is anywhere, but also I'm here and I should recognize that I'm here at least. I think it's the first time we've had that mentioned on this podcast. For so those it. of you listening, I don't know where you are, but maybe look that up. There's a really awesome project that happened. I'm forgetting the name, but they have mapped all of our country from the indigenous land so that you can look up the land on whom you are standing. Yeah, if you don't mind, this is actually really fascinating to me. I live in Utah, of course, which is a Ute Indian land. And uh, these things that you're saying, I've never actually thought about. I've never considered acknowledging or giving thanks for the land that I'm on. I don't really have a question about that. This is the first time I've ever been put in a position to think about that. Am I just in a bubble or is this something that's more really common where you live? And can you help me understand the culture behind that? Oh my gosh. A, you are awesome for saying that. A lot of people don't speak up and say things about which they're not familiar. So kudos to you on that. I have not been in this practice super long, a few years maybe. And it's not something that's where I'm from, but in a lot of the circles that I'm in with activism, environmentalism, and social justice. So when we talk about social justice, the way in which the various indigenous communities in our country have been treated the whole time, treaty breaking, and it's a very long, challenging past to navigate. So as I've become more aware of that, that is a way I have found that myself and people with whom I've come to interact more and more try to always do some sort of land acknowledgement and nod of respect to the people who, without whom we wouldn't be standing where we are. And like Richard said, the land that was ceded and that we took. What I really like about what you just said is that you acknowledge that this isn't necessarily something we do, but it's something that you've experienced through your personal practice. Because I often feel really bad talking about these things because I'm descended directly from Mayflower pilgrims. So Mm -hmm. I have genocide immediately in my past. I can point to the people in my genealogy who have killed other people. And so I always feel really bad because who am I to say anything to anyone about anything? But it's really useful to frame it as not you should do this, but this is something that I've started doing and I find it helps me understand a bit more about where my place is in the universe. And so I really appreciate the way you framed that topic in a non-judgmental way. That's generally my MO is I have a high sensitivity to the way in which the language that we use and the things that we focus our attention on shape who we are and how we are to each other. So I try to practice that, but I have found and and I have experienced when people correct me or judge me for not doing it, then it becomes the PC Olympics. And that is not cool. But acknowledging what is happening that makes one uncomfortable is something I try to be willing to share and willing to receive. And I have an example about that from today that I would love to talk about at some point. People talk about laziness a lot in our industry. They just say like, well, because I'm lazy or because I'm a lazy man. You mentioned that earlier. And and I've had that mentality where if you want to have something done the most efficient way possible, get the laziest person on it. And I've always been that person like, oh, okay, you know, I feel like I'm a lazy developer, not in a bad way, but in a way of like, okay, I really don't want to turn this into a giant thing. So what's the easiest way, the best way to get it done in the most efficient way? Before the show, you were very passionate about this topic. So we ask every guest that we have on here, if there's a topic that you want to talk about that if we didn't talk about, it would be kind of bad or sad. 
this is that topic for you. So I'm dying to hear what you have to say about this. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. I totally agree that we should try to optimize things. When I was in Girl Scouts, okay, I'm maybe 10 years old. I got the book of all the possible badges and made a kid spreadsheet about all the tasks it would take to meet the different badges and mapped a plan and then executed and got myself a whole bunch of badges. Born and bred, let's do this the most efficient way possible. So I'm with us on that. But calling it lazy is, in my opinion, problematic and communicates things to other people amongst ourselves and to other people that don't disclose our awareness of our privilege. So I grew up in a working class family. My parents worked in a paper mill. My mom retired from a paper mill, 30 years of a paper mill. And she got her hair caught in the machine before. One time there was a woman who was a week away from retirement and she got her finger cut off. And my mom had to go pick up the finger to help her so that they might be able to sew it back on. So when we're sitting at our computers and we are working and it's hard work and it is hard being a developer emotionally, psychologically, all of the things politically, there's a lot to juggle. Failure is norm, all of that deal. But when we promote laziness as contrasted with other jobs that we could have had in our lives, it's rough for me to hear it that way. And also because I grew up working class, I have just such a deep pride in being a hard worker that it's hard for me to relate to evaluation of laziness as good. And I know that's not the definition, but sometimes part of language adjustments over time that we're always trying to do is the difference between intent and impact. Even if that is the definition and that's not what you mean, if other people hear it other ways, then that's something for us, ourselves and each other to consider and to disclose and engage with each other. Nobody needs to be a jerk about, you're not allowed to say that, but the education that we could all undertake to be able to speak more respectfully is something I think is worth doing. Well, that's a really good point. And I think first, let me acknowledge my privilege as a white male living in the United States. And it's very easy for people that look like me to get a job in the field that I'm in. And I really want to move to the topic at hand that we really brought you on for, but it is a good reminder to hear this because oftentimes you don't really understand the impact of your words. For me, I see that happen a lot. And I remember just a quick little story. Back when I was a kid, I was mowing my neighbor's lawn and I didn't understand exactly the nuance of what I said, but I asked her a question about the lawnmower and she said, well, you should ask my husband. And for some reason I said, oh, I should have figured that. And uh -huh. see, I didn't think anything of that, but she turned around and she just railed me a new one. And I didn't understand at all until after like he fired me and, but it really was a wake up call to, you got to make sure you understand your words are very important and there are consequences if you're not careful. If you don't mind, I'd love to jump into the topic that I'm pretty excited to talk about, which is the work that you're doing with the Ruby for good. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Me being a Rubyist, when I saw that, I was super excited to talk about this. So I went to code school in 2014. And I was the first cohort of my code school in Durham, North Carolina. It was called the Iron Yard. It is 
since dissolved. I started bringing up, you know, hey, while we're in code school, could we make all of our exercises and stuff actually benefit some nonprofits or something? Because all of these little throwaway apps that we build, people could use. Like I was an administrator for many years. And if I just had that little tracker thing, it would really help me out. So I was talking about that. And the teacher said, Linton Dreisbach, who is completely amazing, said, well, actually, I just got an email today, May, about a conference that just started called Ruby for Good, where the founder, Sean Marcia, does not like it to be called a hackathon. It is a conference because we don't try to go past our limits and it's much more focused on socializing, but we write software for free for nonprofits. That's the long and short of it. And it happens at the conference, but then all year round. So we partner with different nonprofits that those people can submit, I think, right through the website, a suggested nonprofit. And so the relationships happen pretty organically. And then once it's a project, then different volunteers like me agree to take on leading the project and or participating. And that coding happens year round. So the conferences are pretty amazing, but so is the year round experience of open source development with cool crew that really gets to know each other and supports each other. When did it start? It was that year, 2014. And I actually went with a few of my classmates kind of covertly planning to have our own, but they did it so well, we just joined forces. And so we're all Ruby for Good fans. What types of projects have you built or have been built through this? A lot. So I can name some current projects more easily, and that'll give me a, a moment to remember some of the other ones to share. There is a diaper and essential needs for diaper banks where it allows diaper banks to be able to not only do the services themselves, but connect with other providers. So it's sort of like a linking deal. And I think there's over a hundred diaper banks using the software. So that is like one of the flagship ones is the diaper app. And all of the repos are GitHub slash Ruby for good slash, and then the name of the project. So it's GitHub slash Ruby for good slash diaper. And that project is pretty amazing. And another one I've worked on was for the animal shelter. It's outside of DC. This was founded mostly from a DC crew of Rubius. We've worked on, I believe, the Sierra Club. And yeah, it's a long list. But I think a lot of them are on the website. They're redoing the website right now. So it might not have all of them. And I'm mostly associated with three of the projects at this point, but I've worked on others over time. But sometimes the needs of the organization shifts and we don't continue building that thing for them. One of the beneficiaries, one conference was Double H Ranch, which is a nonprofit near me in Glens Falls. That's one of the Paul Newman Hole in the Wall camps for children with critical illnesses. Wow, that's wow. So for people who want to get involved, what type of commitment is required? I assume that you wouldn't have to go to the conferences. Is it just open for volunteers and to whatever extent that they can contribute? What what's your typical contributor that you see in this program? Okay, I'll try to answer all those. Open Sesame, everybody can do anything they want. If you want to do one commit that's like even a documentation change, we would love that. If you want to go to multiple meetings a week and show up at the conferences and dive right in, we would love that. So there really is no 
average contributor. We've had in the repos I've been involved in contributions from all over the world. Hacktoberfest is pretty engaged. So no requirements. Do you have to be a Rubyist? Are you basically looking for people who write Ruby or is it language agnostic? All the projects have a Rails backend, but we have been intentionally doing more front-end frameworks in order to involve more people. We also have formed some partnerships with project management organizations So and design. So we're trying to get the full shebang and not only be Ruby devs, but even if you're not a Ruby developer, you could do some trying some Ruby. Just make a commit, NBD. So this is super, super cool. And before we get to the projects that you're a part of, I want to make sure I cover some things. It sounds like Ruby for Good only exists because of open source. So being able to contribute to it, being able to see the source code, being able to share it freely is part of the open source ethos, which is awesome. And I love it. So cool. There's problems with Mm -hmm. open source. How do you choose the right project? How do you fund this work in the long term? How do you avoid vendor lock-in? for the nonprofits that now have to use this code that was made for them that may not be great. Do you have answers to those questions? So yeah, sustainability is a thing which we should talk about on this podcast. And I have seen different things. I personally have definitely gone overboard for months at a time and then not been able to do anything for months at a time. So there's some choose your own adventure stuff going on. Ruby for Good as an organization got their 501c3 status and are working to recruit more people to take on more leadership roles to make the organization of it more sustainable as well. One project that I hope we'll talk about is the Terra Stories project. And They have received grant funding to help with that project, which is an awesome story collector that's map-based, supported by Mapbox. And when they've received grant money, hired some of the primary contributors to do some extra work. And partly I had discussions. I was involved in some of those discussions. All right, well, if you want all of this stuff, having somebody who, even if it is just like a honorarium, it's a little token can go a long way and just show the commitment, especially if there is a grant funding stream associated with the project. So that is a topic that gets talked about a lot, but yeah, isn't definitely answered. And vendor lock-in is legit. And they're, no, it's great. And we have not experienced someone needing to not use our system anymore. What I know about, and I'm, I might be misspeaking, but this is my recollection of understanding of what's gone down. I'm not like a primary organizer, so there's a caveat there. But sometimes the organization stops needing the thing that we built and or the person leaves, like nonprofits have some turnover, which is also why we want to contribute these things is to institutionalize the knowledge and processes. So when they have stopped doing it or they lost a person or they don't have the bandwidth to engage with us is the only time I've seen Ruby for Good projects sort of fall by the wayside. But making sure we've just worked on staffing the project so well that when a lead needs to step down or move away, there's already other people who are involved and and know about it. So the organization has continuous support from Ruby for Good. But I'm sure that bridge will end up needing to be crossed. That's a really interesting point. You talk about, you know, we tend to have staffing, have someone ready to take over in the wings. That's really difficult. One of the projects with a lot of these 
hackathon turned good software that I've seen. And I've seen this before in other code schools. I used to be a mentor at the Turing Academy. Oh, cool. Um, I have other people who have like gone through code schools. And what's really interesting is it seems like open source is particularly benevolent or useful to people learning to code. Mm-hmm. But maybe not to people who are already established and have a full-time job and don't have weekends anymore, maybe have dependents. Mm-hmm. And so young students, it's great. Hey, let's hack in this great thing and save the world. And then five years later, it's like, I frankly, I need a beer, you know? And so I'm just curious, how do you ensure that you have people waiting in the wings? How do you stop that problem of like young person burnout? Okay, but I just, I will answer that, but I will add this, not only young people, because I am yes, middle-aged thank you. and I did not go to code school until I was almost 40 years old. Um, That's awesome. Also, sorry about the beer comment. Oh, it's fine. Like non-alcoholic drinks. No problem. <laughs> Thanks. I also actually am sensitive to how everything ends up about beer. And I bring that up, but I did not feel that way when you said it. But it's absolutely most helpful to people who are new in their career and That is both awesome in helping them and using that as a renewable source of labor that is, we'll go with the word from earlier, problematic. So yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. Ruby for Good in particular, most of the people that have gone to the conference since 2014 have stuck with it. It's not all people who are early career coders. I won't say young people. I almost did. But yeah, so there's people who like to be in community. And so there's a lot that we get out of it that isn't just coding. So we meet with each other and we know what's going on in each other's lives. And it's not just thanks for your PR, peace out. But some people do that and they that's what they want. And that's totally okay too. Like if you just want to drop a PR, drive by PR, cool. But if you want some community around things that you love, which is most programmers love programming, not all, but if that's something you want to do in your spare time with other people, the whole Ruby for Good scene is a pretty good place to find yourself. Awesome. It sounds like it. I want to get to the two other projects, which you're also involved with, not just Title Track Michigan, because I think we covered that a bit, but you have two others here. I'm seeing Voices of Consent and Mutual Aid. Can you talk a bit Mm -hmm. about what these are? So Voices of Consent is a nonprofit that was formed by a survivor, a woman who wanted other women who experienced abuse to just have support. So they make care packages. There's a request form, and then they hand make some care packages that includes toiletries, some niceties, and some references and resources that are specific to the kind of abuse that they shared that they had experienced. They don't need to go into a lot of details, just like categorically. And we have written a system to allow them to be able to figure out exactly which items should be in there and then check them off because they've got this whole, basically a human state machine of like, there's people who think what needs to be in the box. There's people who put the stuff in the box. There's people who ship the box. There's people who follow up with people. And so not everybody knows all the pieces. And so you don't know where someone lives and you know someone lives, but you don't know what's in it. And so there's a a lot of obfuscation there that's really cool. So 
yep, that's one of them. And that project is on hold right now. The organization is going through some reorg stuff, but we're just waiting for them to give us the go ahead to get more engaged. We were a featured repo on GitHub, like one of the most engaged repos during Hacktoberfest a couple of years ago. I was really proud of that. Did you have any questions about Voices of Consent? I was going to move along. I love it. Keep going. We talked about this before, but I love being interrupted. It means to me that you care. Thank about you what so I'm much saying. for saying that. As an yeah, thank you I so much, Maya. You. You're awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much. Thank you. Well, I'll just interrupt each other right now to demonstrate our love of that statement. Um, I spend so much time dealing with Californians who are like, you didn't let me finish my sentence. And I'm like, in my culture where I grew up, that was rude. I don't know how to say it in any other way. Totally. It's the opposite. Like, it does not mean that I think that what you're saying is less important than what I want to tell you. It means that we can both be talking at the same time and listening to what the other person I know. I know. We totally can. Why not? <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell actually talks about this in his book, Outliers. He talks Which, about oh. Jewish American families in New York. And how it's rude not to interrupt. Yeah. You don't think what I'm saying is interesting? Come on. Come on. Um, what are you talking about? Come yeah. on. Anyway, so, yeah. yeah. I, I was about to say sorry because I've internalized waiting and I'm not going to say sorry. I'm just gonna say- <laughs> Thanks. There are times when, you know, especially as a, a woman in tech, there's some stuff. And like sometimes people really are not letting me speak or talking over me or mansplaining me and stuff like that. And so I will speak up in those cases because there is a way in which it can be uncool. But mostly if someone's interrupting me, I'm like, yes, thank you. And I can actually speak for a lot of people. At least I think I can speak for a lot of people where, again, you don't know what your words mean. And also, I think that there's so much, especially when you're, again, like me, a white privileged male uh, cisgender that doesn't understand the challenges that other people face. And these conversations are always sobering to me. And they always kind of remind me of, remember that people have challenges that you simply don't have, but it's hard to know what those are unless people speak up about them and tell you about them. And I honestly, I feel bad sometimes for men who are pig piled on because they said something and, and mm-hmm. I, I empathize because I'm, I, I didn't know that was bad totally. or, and we're all learning together. But yeah, these types of conversations are really important to speak up and interrupt if needed. Yeah, love it. And also on that, the longer any of us know each other, we are going to disappoint each other. There's no way to have that not be true. And we operate as if relationships are Boolean states. And if we can shift that to being able to engage and build trust and build understanding, then we can get somewhere. What I really like about the interruption thing wasn't that you feel comfortable being interrupted or that I feel comfortable interrupting you or anything like that. It's that you mentioned it at the beginning and said, Hey, this is how I work. Don't worry about it. (laughs) And that gift was so nice because then it's like, okay, I know where I stand. And I was thinking today, I saw this tweet yesterday that says, can we have a a word for reaching out to someone who has ADHD saying, I haven't heard from you in six months. I don't hate you. We're still friends. (laughs) Uh (laughs) This is something I struggle with a lot. We're like, if I haven't heard from someone, I'm like, what did I say? Uh-huh, what, what, uh-huh. When they're like, it's fine, you know, and just stating what things are makes it so much easier to discuss things. If we could do better about verbalizing our self-awarenesses, the ways in which we know we mess up regularly and that we're working on or 
let's just get some disclosure here so that we could all better interpret what's happening because everybody's interpreting everybody else based on their own translation and dictionary and you build yours up as you live. But yeah, if you've never been exposed to these ideas, you're not going to know them. Back to what you were saying, Eric, you reminded me of, you know, the example with the trash can in the classroom, there's going to be an exam and every kid has a sheet of paper and they're in a standard classroom. The teacher is at the front kind of classroom and the teacher says, okay, whoever can get the paper in the basket is going to get a hundred on their exam. They don't have to take it. So on the count of five, you can throw your paper in the basket, but you have to stay where you're at. So they were like, okay, so the people crumple up the paper and then they throw the paper in the basket and the people in the first few rows, you know, are shooting and aiming and the people in the back two rows just stand up like WTF. What are you talking about? I can't make it. And so it's so visible to the people in the back, the privilege or advantage of what's in front of you. I just find that example to help me better understand as someone who grew up working class and I did not have a lot of advantages. My peers can find it hard to think about themselves as privileged. And that quote of, it's not that you weren't disadvantaged. It's just that the color of your skin for the race example was not something that made that harder or was not something that made it worse. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, a great analogy. I am a facilitator and as such, I'm always conscious of several things. One of them is that we have a thing on stack, which is mutual aid, but we're also running up on time and I want to make sure we get to spotlight. So could you give a brief blurb, which tells the listener what it is and how to get involved? Yep, totally. So mutual aid is one of the Ruby for Good projects. We were kind of our own entity, but we've partnered with Ruby for Good. And mutual aid itself, like, what is that? It's a word that's getting said more and more. It basically just means neighbors helping neighbors or people helping each other. You don't have to literally live next door. And when the pandemic started, people started off all these spreadsheets to be able to like give people what they needed and do an exchange that doesn't have to do with monetary things or hours counting or anything. It's just like freely giving and mutual aid also includes a political arm of taking a political stance in that it's not charity. There's a phrase solidarity, not charity. And so the thing is to be able to see yourself in whatever situation it is and not being like the white savior going to help people. If you're a white person and you're dealing with things that have to do with race, but these topics can be across any kind of thing that's going down. And so it's about people coming together and doing so in a way that is collective and not hierarchical and not white culture dominant and that shebang. So you- Is this using code? Thank you. Yes, I'm getting there. Sorry. So yeah, we've got a repo. It helps people be able to submit and claim exchange things as well as share community resources. Like maybe there's going to be a food drive or there's going to be, you know, supplies giveaway, whatever it is. And we're partnering with multiple mutual aid groups around the country to build what they need. Yep. I think that's maybe it. That's awesome. That reminds me a lot of Open Collective. They have similar work where they have collectives where you can actually go and give money to basically fund things like solidarity with people in Portland or Uh riots. So I love that work. That's super awesome. 
I wish we had more time to talk about it. Unfortunately, yeah, no, don't. This is my favorite type of podcast where we actually have an yeah. engaging conversation and I forget what happens. In case I want to follow up with you later or in case the listeners, oh, listeners, want to see your work or get involved with these projects, where can they go? So I'm a little bit of a social media ghost, but the Ruby for Good organization and GitHub has all these different projects, Voices of Consent, Mutual Aid, Terra Stories, which we covered briefly, as well as the diaper app, all of those things. Yeah, it's hard to directly message me. You could send me a Twitter message. <laughs> that's what I call it because that's how much I use that platform. And eventually I'll get it. I have a LinkedIn and sometimes I check that. <laughs> that's okay. You don't have to be on social media. It's fine. If you want to get involved with Ruby for Good, go to Ruby for Good. I really can't talk about Terra stories enough because I'm really interested in general in oral narratives that are being saved from indigenous people, which is pretty much what Terra stories is. That is the yeah. coolest thing ever. That is and it so was awesome. requested by them. Like the indigenous yes. community said, we would like to be able to have this digitally for the younger people because they will respond to it better. It was driven by, as opposed to coming in and saying, we could give you some technology. That's my favorite thing ever, ever. Awesome. All right. Yep. Before we end this up, I want to get to the spotlight. The spotlight is where we highlight or shed light on projects which have helped us in our career, which we particularly love, or we just think really should be in the so-named spotlight for a hot minute. Eric, what is your spotlight today? Yeah, one that's really relevant to me right now is a Ruby project called Bridgetown. Bridgetown is a static site generator that is built on Webpack, but also Ruby. So what's really neat about this is I'm able to create very elaborate Ruby component-based websites that'll compile down and then I can just launch it on any static host like Netlify or whatever. But the team behind it is incredible. They're highly engaged with the community. And honestly, I think if you've used Jekyll, this is like the next evolution of Jekyll. Very impressed with these guys. It's bridgetownrb.com. Thank you so awesome. much, Eric. Not just guys, probably also people of both and or any gender, but that's okay. Thank you it for happens. correcting me. Yeah. That's fine. Also, you may have noticed it's really hard for us to think of original spotlights every time bridgetown has been on here at least once but it's it okay it just it. means eric really loves it call me out call me out mine today is going to be emma uh ema the erasmus mundus association erasmus mundus is how i got my master's program it's basically mm. a fulbright to europe so it's a ton of european organizations a consortia where you have master's programs in almost every imaginable field there's 130 of them as well as phds and you go and study at multiple universities in Europe. And the Alumni Association is fantastic. I've made some amazing, some of my best friends in the world to this day, started through that. And that was the first time I was in an incubator. And that mm. incubator directly led to me getting my first tech job. So I just wanted to, we're talking about, you know, code schools earlier. I've never been to a code school, but I have been incubated somewhere and that really helped. So just want to shout out to EMA. Thank you so much. May, what's yours? Well, I'm just going to go ahead and be a Ruby for Good commercial on this podcast, which wasn't totally my intention. But yeah, I went while I was still in code school, like I said, and I was talking with one of the developers, Betsy Heibel, and she told me I said something and she asked me about Excel and I was saying I had done tons of Excel things. And she said, you are a developer. You just haven't been calling it that because you don't know it as that, but you already are a developer, mate. And I 
never forget it. And I thank her as many times as I can, like just to be seen and acknowledged and validated at Ruby for Good is something that many people have experienced. And, you know, that is something that we, we work on cultivating a culture of supporting each other through our careers, through our personal growth, whatever it is. One other thing I wish I had brought up, which was WeCamp, W-E-C, which you are invited. We, I think, are really going to do it this year. WeCamp grew out of D-Camp that Evan Light founded, and that I helped to get over and renamed it to be more on the We plan. I have so much to say to that, as I have for this entire conversation. Thank you so much for coming on here. It's been really excellent to have you, to have your wisdom and perspective and voice. Thank you so much. It was so great. Really fun. Appreciate you both. Super fun. 